having just a couple housekeeping items to address quickly. I just want to give thanks to Clayton and Zion for their ministry to us in music today. Uh, Zion's one of our newest members and just a delight to see how the Lord's building our church. And uh, there's no one happier in this room than my wife to hear the piano being played besides, by someone besides her. Uh, so thank you, Zion, for your part and Clayton for putting it all together. Um, encouraged by that. And then uh, if you have the sermon card for, for January through March, you'll notice that my sermon on January 1st sounds a little strange compared to what my titles typically sound like, so I titled it Faith's Review and Expectation, and uh, it's from First Chronicles 17, which also is not from Luke, so that maybe that struck you as a little bit unusual. So uh, what I'm preaching that day, just the, uh, the 32nd trailer to make you really want to come back to church on January 1st, is uh, that, that day marks exactly 250 years since John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace, which was titled Faith's Review and Expectation. And uh, he preached a sermon at his church that day in London on January 1st, 1773, called Faith Review and Expectation. He wrote a song to go with it. We now call it Amazing Grace, but we sing it 250 years later. As far as I understand, it's the most uh, well-known song worldwide, uh, even to this day. So I'm going to be preaching that day the passage that John Newton preached and the passage that he wrote that song based off of, and uh, of course talked about the theology of that song and so forth as well. So that's a little trailer to make you want to come back uh, two weeks from now, hopefully uh, you want to come back next week as well, just because it's a Sunday, um, but uh, just encourage you to uh, consider that as well as you think about uh, Christmas morning next week. We sang this morning of the newborn king, and our passage today is Luke 19, verses 28 through 48, which talks about uh, a king who is being celebrated as he enters Jerusalem uh, in a, a different uh, situation certainly than, than when people were celebrating him as the newborn king, uh, but I encourage you to take your Bible and turn there to Luke 19, verses 28 through 48, a passage that we often refer to as the triumphal entry, uh, a section that's included in all four Gospels, which actually there's been a lot of passages in Luke recently, which only Luke includes, and so here he's uh, joining with the other Gospel writers as well to tell of this important moment in Jesus' life as he's brought into Jerusalem where, uh, as you'll see, people were, were celebrating him as if the king has now arrived and our lives are now going to be perfect. And in his mind, he was going into Jerusalem for a very different purpose. So uh, let me read here verses uh, 28 through 48 in Luke 19. And if you're new to the Bible, if you need a Bible, uh, there may be one under the seat in front of you or near, near you. Uh, otherwise, you're welcome to grab one off of our resource table and uh, follow along. Uh, here in Luke 19, and as I was going to say, if you're new to the Bible and need help finding it, I'm sure one of the folks near you will help you find it, but otherwise, uh, I'll be reading this passage now, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the, the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words." Has there ever been a situation in your life where you've had to have your expectations adjusted? Maybe you were hired for a new job and you showed up for the first day and you could tell immediately, this is just not what they had presented to me in the interview process. Or perhaps you hired someone and then that person shows up and on the first day, this is not the person that I thought I had hired. Perhaps you got married and hopefully weeks or months, hopefully years into the process, you thought, hmm, this is... Not quite the person I thought I had married. Hopefully you never had to have that thought, but I know many of us have. Perhaps you thought, man, life will be awesome when we have kids, and then you have kids, and you have to readjust your expectations there as well. Uh, Perhaps there's a number of other ways you could look at that. I know uh, from a sports perspective, and yes, I do talk about sports every week, so if that's a problem, it is a problem, but... uh, In this particular case, last summer, so a year and a half ago now, uh, the Bears had just drafted Justin Fields. And they, before he ever took a practice snap wearing a Bears uniform, they had shirts with just his face in uh, Dick's Sporting Goods. Like it didn't say anything. It said everything it needed to say. The Messiah has arrived. That's what the shirt said without saying any words, just having his face on it. He's doing pretty well this year compared to last year, so maybe he is really good. We'll see. Give us a couple more years to find out. But that being said, expectations needed to be adjusted even in that situation. And that, has, that story could be told many times over as well. If you just want to think about other first-round draft picks in Chicago Bears history, adjust your expectations a little bit. In our passage today, we have people celebrating the arrival of the king. Now our enemies are going down. Now we're declared the winners. Now our lives will be all good. And Jesus is coming in with a different mission than what people were expecting, a different message than what they were expecting. And what we need to draw, the lesson we need to draw from this passage is that Jesus is the exalted King. And so we should worship Him. He's the exalted King. So worship Him. We have sung of Him as the newborn King. We've read passages of His rule and reign overall. We anticipate when His rule will be perfected in the new heavens, the new earth, in His, uh, in his kingdom reign. But in the meantime, our job is to worship Christ, worship Jesus, the exalted King. This passage 
gives us three aspects of his person and work that compel us to worship him. The first is in verses 28 through 40, where we're told to worship the king for his mighty works. Worship the king for his mighty works. And particularly drawing that uh, off of uh, verse, uh, let's see here, I'm blanking out here already, and it's later on in my notes, and I just thought I would jump ahead to preview why, uh, why I, I titled this uh, first section. This way, So it was verse 37, pray, they were praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So we praise and we worship this king because of his mighty works there in verse 37. But here back in verse 28, when he had said these things, it's referring back to the parable he had just told in the passage we looked at last week, the parable of uh, the uh, inheritance that he left behind for his servants to uh, take care of declaring that his followers must steward the resources he's given them. And now he's going up to Jerusalem. And we recall that over and over again, Luke has made a point of saying that Jesus has one place on his mind. And back in chapter 9, verse 51, it says that he set his face to go toward Jerusalem and nothing was going to get in the way of him getting there so that he could go to make atonement for sins. And what we find out is early, early on in this passage is that Jesus knew that there would be a cult there that he would ride on to make his public entrance into Jerusalem. And perhaps as you, read, as you heard me read that and follow along as, as you read it along with me, uh, you asked yourself the question, well, how did Jesus know that cult was going to be there? And there's really just a couple of options here. One is that he kind of planned it in advance and maybe he didn't tell anybody else he was going to do that and just... Uh, maybe knew somebody in that village and told them to have a cult ready and maybe even created this password by which when the disciples showed up, they could tell, okay, this really is the right disciples. I read multiple people this week saying that, and I just don't find that convincing for multiple reasons. Uh, but one, it just refer, it, one reason I don't find it convincing is because there are a lot of other things that Jesus knew that he couldn't have prearranged to have known, such as the fish on the side of the boat back in chapter 5. Uh, and multiple other situations like that. So what could be going on here? The way I would understand this is that uh, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, knew this because the Holy Spirit had told him. So the third option, that's the second option. The third option is that Jesus knew this because he's omniscient. That's possible, okay? And so I don't want to discount if, some, if you read somewhere or hear that somewhere. That, that is possible. Obviously, Jesus is God, I just take Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, where it says that he laid aside his glory for us. I take that to be one, one implication of that is that Jesus chose willingly to lay aside his God attributes, his attributes, his Godness, we could say, for the sake of living life fully as a human. And so what that means then is when Jesus has, in my understanding, when Jesus has four knowledge of a situation is because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to him. And so that, that's the way I read this, is that, that the Holy Spirit had revealed to Jesus that this cult would be there. Uh, of course, you're welcome to disagree with me and, and assume that he had his omniscience in this time. That's totally fine. I just would be curious to know when did Jesus' omniscience begin in his human life? Was it at the moment he was born? Was it the moment of conception? Like You, you just kind of have to figure out. And so you know that's obviously more of a logical argument. Theologically speaking, there's lots of passages in Luke and in Acts especially, which again, Luke wrote Acts, so these two work together well, where Jesus uh, is, is said to 
be led by the Holy Spirit, he went out into the wilderness. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he did this. And because the Lord was with him, he did this. And those, those are the passages I'm leaning on to draw this conclusion. If you have never asked that question before and you're totally unconcerned about that question, no problem. Thanks for bearing with me on that. Uh, but I think one other thought we can have in this is whether it's because of Christ's omniscience or because of the Holy Spirit revealing it to him, clearly this was a prearranged providential detail because of the work of God and because of the power of God. And so we know that God providentially oversaw every detail of that moment just as he does every detail of our moments. And so even the fact that Jesus would ride on a colt uh, is a providential reminder of the Lord's care in the details of our lives as well. And I just want to encourage you to embrace the beauty of the providence of God in your life. And I think we're going to spend all of eternity just turning over new leaves, so to speak, of recognizing situations in our lives where the Lord was ruling and we had no idea that He had set up a circumstance in a particular way so that He would be glorified in that situation, so that we would receive good in that situation. So even the fact that you're here today rather than at Trader Joe's or in bed or in any number of other places is a reminder that the Lord is ruling over this moment in your life, and I just want to encourage you to lean into that and to embrace the good and the bad that come in our lives as all being from the hand of God and from His kind and beautiful providence. But we also see Jesus' humility on display here. He rode on a young donkey, not on basically a brand new donkey, one that had never been used before, so it was appropriate to be used for a kind of, in a sense, a royal moment. But he rode on a young donkey, not a huge white stallion, right? Like you would expect maybe like one of these Clydesdales from beer commercials to show up to carry Jesus into Jerusalem. These beautiful, humongous machines of animals. Instead, Jesus chooses a young donkey displaying his humility, displaying his beauty in this way. Of course, we know uh, though this ceremony was not filled with pomp and circumstance, there is a day that Revelation 19.11 tells us about where John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So this beautiful Savior, whose name is Faithful and True, will one day ride on a great white horse. But in the meantime, he rode on a humble donkey, refusing to, to uh, promote himself, but he was, in a sense, uh, bringing attention to himself. He had never, there's no other place in the Bible that tells us that Jesus did this before then. But we do know that Zechariah 9.9 is being fulfilled in this very moment. Let me read what this passage says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, O citizen of Jerusalem, we could say. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus knew, even as he read that passage in, in his life experience in Zechariah 9 9, that one day he would be fulfilling that very passage. And here he comes riding, riding into Jerusalem, yes, drawing attention to himself, but doing so in a way that displays his power to the nations and to the citizens of Jerusalem and to all those who had come to uh, Jerusalem for Passover, which was happening at this very time in Jerusalem. And so I think as we read this passage and consider Jesus' humility, we should worship Him for that very humility. 
Yes, we can worship Him for His greatness, but look at the beauty of our humble, gentle Savior who came uh, to save His people and then anticipate His glorious return when He will indeed ride in triumph on a white horse. And, and then as we consider these two facets of His character and of His work, we then also want to walk in humility and lay aside these petty strife, the petty strife that develops in our hearts. We want to be people who are super hard to offend, like almost unoffendable. Like people just can't offend us by what they say because we think so little of ourselves. Not that we consider ourselves to be dirt. We are made in the image of God as, as Clayton so well prayed in the pastoral prayer. So we are full of beauty and dignity because of the Lord's work. But as Tim Keller describes sometimes, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. And so we, we want to consider if the Lord was willing to humble Himself in this way, surely we can walk in humility as well. Now, as we look at these details of this passage again in verse 31, where, where Jesus says that he, these d- disciples should tell the cult's owners that the Lord has need of it, and then in verse 34, that's exactly what they say. It's possible then that the owners of the cult were themselves followers of Jesus, were themselves disciples. And the reason I conclude that is often in the book of Luke, uh, just average citizens or you know, people who perhaps hadn't met Jesus yet would often refer to him as teacher or rabbi or master or a variety of other terms or just Jesus of Nazareth. But here, they're referring to him as Lord, which as I have read through Luke a number of times, I've noticed that I think typically only believers, only those who are following Jesus and and consider him to be the great king would be the ones who would call him Lord. But in verse 37, now that Jesus is on this colt and people see him riding riding down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples, so people who have gathered from all over the region to come to Jerusalem for Passover, they're all crying out together, singing praise, quoting in verse 38, Psalm 118, when they say, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But they're doing this, they're crying out with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, that they had heard about. So which mighty works do you think they might have had? In mind, when you think through the scope of all of Luke that we've been looking at for quite a while now, what works would they have been celebrating? Well, they would have been celebrating the fact that he raised people from the dead. They would have celebrated that he had cast out demons, that he had made the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and the mute to speak, and the deaf to hear. He had caused storms to cease their raging, he had offered the forgiveness of sins. He had healed lepers. And we could go on and on. These were the mighty works that they had in their minds. These were the reasons they were praising Him. And we should praise Him for those same reasons. But I also want you to pause and reflect and ask ask yourself the question, what mighty works have I seen God do in my life that I can praise Him for? Maybe your life's not all you had hoped it would be. Maybe your expectations truly have come up short of what you had expected your life would be. But perhaps you have some mighty works in your life that you can praise Him for, such as preserving your life, your health, giving you a loving family, perhaps giving you a Christian heritage where the gospel was just naturally passed on to you one generation to the next. But especially if you are a Christian, you're here today, 
given praise to God for the knowledge of the gospel, for the free gift of salvation the Lord has provided you. This would be the mighty work for you to praise Him for. Notice in verse 38, as they saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And essentially what we're seeing is lots of echoes from the first couple of chapters in Luke. And in the passage I'll be preaching next week, verses uh, chapters 1 and 2, not in the level of depth I am today, but uh, overviewing these first two chapters as a way of reviewing on Christmas Day. What did the angels sing in Luke 2, verse 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And so they are celebrating peace as well. They're singing glory in the highest as well back there in Luke 2. And uh, there are lots of other echoes between today's passage and those first couple of chapters of Luke as well. But the Pharisees did not respond in verses 39 and or especially in verse 39, as well as the disciples were. And so we see two competing groups here, so to speak. Two competing responses to this King, to Christ the Messiah. Of course, you have the celebration of those who were the followers of Jesus. And we have no reason to believe that these disciples were then the ones who were crying out for Christ's crucifixion later. These were the followers who had heard and seen with their eyes, heard of Him with their ears and seen with their eyes of His mighty works. And they sought to worship Him, but then there was another crowd, another faction of people who were uh, opposing Christ. And that's what we see in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like, you are not worthy of this kind of response. Don't you realize that if you let these people carry on like this, it's going to create an insurrection. And the Romans are going to get involved and we're going to have all kinds of problems. So make them hush now before it's too late. And Jesus' response is simply... Uh, masterful in a sense, when he says, I tell you, if these, my disciples, were silent, the very stones would cry out. And there's two Old Testament passages that maybe Jesus has in mind when he, when he says this. It's an unusual saying for sure that an inanimate object would give praise to God if, if, if people stopped doing that. Uh, one passage just comes from Genesis 4, which remember, uh, Cain has just killed Abel. And uh, and the Lord comes to him, and basically what you hear is that the, the very blood is crying out, that the ground is crying, crying out about uh, this innocent blood that's been shed there. There's another passage in Habakkuk 2 where it says that the walls would cry out. And so perhaps Jesus had one or, two or, uh, one or both of those passages in mind when he says, look, if people stop praising me, that's fine, because praise is going to continue to resound no matter what. But uh, these inanimate objects then bearing witness to the truth. But all of this is to say, verses 28 through 40, worship the king for his mighty works. Secondly, in verses 41 through 44, worship the king for his genuine grief. You see a heartbroken king here. Very unusual. You would not expect this. You'd expect him to be triumphantly marching in or riding into the city, and instead he's standing there weeping, crying out with loud cries over the state of the city below him. Why is he crying over it? Let's read these verses again. He drew near and saw the city and he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. They've just been singing about peace that the crowd has. 
Would that you know the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So what is the king grieving over? He's grieving over their missed opportunity. That's the first part of it. He's grieving over their missed opportunity. Of course, the only other place we hear of Jesus weeping is in John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible that every one of us should have memorized, that Jesus wept. There you go. Jesus wept. Now you have a verse memorized if you have no other verse memorized. But here we see him weeping again. But in that case, he was weeping out of love for Lazarus, perhaps, out of sorrow that his people weren't, weren't recognizing that Christ himself was, was uh, present and was able to respond to the situation. But here he's weeping because these people had an opportunity to repent. They had an opportunity and they, they missed out. They've missed that opportunity. And now, in fact, not only will they not be able, or I'll just put it this way, they will not be able to see because now the truth is being hidden from their eyes. You notice how that's worded there in the end of verse 42? Now they are, the things that make for peace are hidden from your eyes. Stated passively, so that should make you ask the question, who's doing the hiding? Who's hiding the truth? And what we would call this, what theologians would call this, is a divine passive. God Himself is the one who's hiding the truth from them. They had the window of time to respond to the truth. And now that window is closed. He does this to remind us for for one reason. He does this to remind us that now is the day of salvation. Remember back in in Luke 4, a summary passage of of Jesus' ministry? He said He's here to declare the day of God's favor. Now your window is wide open. You can turn to God and have your sins forgiven. Come to Him in faith and repentance. But that window, Jesus is now declaring here in verse uh, 42, that that window is now closed, that these truths are now hidden from your eyes. So he's grieving over their missed opportunity. He's also grieving over their future destruction. What is this passage talking about? Perhaps you're not aware, perhaps you are aware that in in the year A.D. 70, the Romans came in under uh, Emperor Titus was his name, and they came in and utterly laid Jerusalem bare. This was a work of man under the providence of God out of judgment for man's sin. And we see this throughout the Bible, that God uses other people groups to bring judgment on His own people. You see this in the book of Habakkuk, for instance. You see this in in the exile in general, that God uses other wicked people to judge His own wicked people, His own uh, Jewish people who had turned against the Lord and rejected Him. If God's claims on their lives and they said, you know, we're not interested in this anymore. And God says, okay, I'm, I have given you warning after warning. And now, even though I have come to you, Jesus could say, you did not receive me, right? This verse in John, he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. And so they are going to receive this horrifying judgment that verses 43 and 44 describe, which, which simply is, is saying that, the Romans are going to come in and lay this place bare. And it's going to be a testament to the power of the Romans in destroying a city more than to a testament of the beauty that Jerusalem was at the time. This was a judgment 
on His people for rejecting Christ. And ultimately, that destruction in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was a foretaste of the judgment that all those who reject Christ will receive. And so I just want to pause and recognize that all of us stand in line to receive the judgment of God for our rebellion. God made us perfectly, beautifully, masterfully, and we turned in rebellion against Him. And so every one of us then stands to face the judgment of God, the wrath of God. Thankfully, God wasn't done. And so when you read in Genesis 3 of the fall, God didn't just say, oh, let's just scrap this plan and start over or just be done with this whole thing altogether. In God's beautiful plan of redemption, He sent Christ. He sent this Messiah, this King, to lay down His life so that He could absorb the wrath of God that you deserve. And so if you're here today and you would say, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I have lots of questions about what you're talking about here, about this judgment and this forgiveness and this redemption. We would love to talk to you afterwards. And so please find me or Clayton or really just talk to the person next to you. And if they have questions, they can, they can come and find us as well. But the bottom line is, you have a window of opportunity. Today may be the day of salvation for you. And so if you have not put your hope in Christ or even trusted in your spiritual performance or in your spiritual background or the fact that you've said certain prayers a certain thousand number of times or any number of other belief system, put your hope in Christ alone. And we would love to talk to you about that. When Jesus says here in verse 44, you did not know the time of your visitation, he's again referring back to something in a previous passage in, in Luke let me read to you verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is Zechariah prophesying back in a beautiful passage in Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. And He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Essentially what He's saying is He has sent the Messiah. He has visited us through the, giving us the Messiah that visited is now being revisited, and I did not plan that, uh, here in verse 44. So if, if when Jesus was being foretold, and now the Messiah is about to be born back in Luke 1, that was the day of God's visitation. He has come and shined His light on you, given you hope and peace through the Messiah, and you missed it, is what Jesus is saying here. That window is now slammed shut. So perhaps today is the day of your visitation. Perhaps the Lord has given you the truth I would urge you not to leave here without clarity about where you stand between you and the Lord. So worship the Lord in the first part of our passage today for His mighty works. Here, worship Him for His genuine grief, which is over the missed opportunity and over the future judgment of His people. And here in verses 45 through 48, worship the King for His prophetic ministry. Worship the King for His prophetic ministry. So what Luke doesn't tell us that the other gospel writers do is that there's actually another night in here, all right? So maybe between verse 44 and verse 45, you could just imagine there, you could write in your Bible if you wanted to, that there's another day there. And again, the other gospel writers make that clear. He went back to Bethany and slept, and he came back into Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem, he went to the temple. And verse 45 says, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So worship the king for his prophetic ministry. What Jesus is doing here is upsetting 
something that had become totally normal in their culture. If you want to make a sacrifice, go to the temple and buy your animal there and sacrifice it there. And it's kind of like a, a way to make a smooth transaction. You don't have to bring your own sacrifice with you. You can just show up. There will be animals there for you to buy and you can just have it sacrificed there as atonement for your sin and under the Old Testament system. But this was not what the temple was designed to be. What Jesus does is quotes from Isaiah 56, verse 7, that line where He says, My house shall be a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56. And Jesus is saying, that's what this was intended to be, and you've completely disrupted it. You've made it into the Walmart of our day, and that was never part of the plan. You're taking this place that is a spiritual light, so to speak, and you've turned it into just a commercial center. And Jesus disrupts that system. And he says, instead of making it a house of worship, he quotes Jeremiah 7, verse 11 then, when he says, you have made it a den of robbers. You made it a place where the scum of the earth come to buy and sell instead of making it a place where God Himself is worshipped. What he's doing is he's having the voice of the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs in their day prophesying against the system that has become completely normal. And maybe what we need to do is back up and say, what have we become totally oblivious to that does not honor God in our culture? And let me just make a little, before I come back to that, little insert a little parenthetical here to say the church is not in apples-to-apples connection to the temple, but that's a whole other sermon. But um, So in other words, we're not exactly the same, but the church now is where the presence of God is abiding through the Spirit and dwelt people of God. So I'll stop my temple sermonette there, but I will say if you have questions about it, I'd love to talk about it. It's a beautiful theme from the beginning of the Bible to the very end. And I truly mean that. From Genesis uh, 1 and 2 all the way down to the last couple chapters of the Bible, you have temple all over it. But here, you have people in the temple and people have gotten totally accustomed to wickedness And I just want to ask you, where have we as, let's just say American Christians in the 21st century gotten totally accustomed to wickedness and we're saying nothing about it? In other words, maybe Jesus shouldn't have been the one that had to say this. Uh, You guys should not be selling here, right? Other people, maybe the priests should have been saying, guys, you can't be selling this in the temple. Like this is a house of prayer. Don't be making a chaotic circus in here. And so what have we as American Christians just been silent about? Where do we need to raise our voice? In this pulpit, in this church, in this community, in the world. And I would simply say that there are things going on in our own Southern Baptist Convention, in the American church at large, that we are going to need to continue to stand against. Jesus left us here in the world to have a prophetic voice, to speak His prophetic message. And so we have to decide which fights we're going to fight, which message we're going to hammer, uh, we must choose wisely. You can't fight every fight. But I will say the ones that kind of are at the forefront of our society right now, and particularly at the forefront of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, particularly have to do with uh, women in ministry, whether you can have a woman pastor. And this is not a, you know, a slight to women in the least, that God has chosen for men to be pastors and women not to be pastors. This is an issue that should not be an issue in our churches, but it is an issue right now. And I'll simply tell you that as long as Clayton and I are are the elders here, we're not going to change our position on this. And so I'd encourage you to 
to abide, not, not abide by that, but to embrace that perspective as well, that God has spoken clearly on this, and it is beautiful, and it is part of His design for husbands and wives to relate to each other in a certain way, and for pastors and churches to relate to each other in a certain way. So this is one particular issue. Another issue in the forefront of our society right now is just how we handle sexual sin. And that's the same in our churches as well. How are we going to respond when someone is living in open immorality? Is a church going to look the other way and say, just leave that alone? When, a church, when, when someone uh, embraces a homosexual lifestyle, are we going to say that oh, that's totally normal in our society, so just look the other way? And again, I'm just simply going to say, as long as Clayton and I are the elders here, this is going to be an issue that's going to be cut and dry because the Word of God is cut and dry. And what we're saying is, we want to encourage you to see these things the same way. And so if, if you're looking for a church that openly embraces homosexuality as a normal part of our society, this is not your church. We would love for you to keep coming and to have your mind changed over time. That would, I'm not pushing anybody away. Uh, but these are some of the issues that we as Christians need to be willing to talk about and willing to preach about and willing to uh, pick a fight about, if we're going to put it that way. Jesus decided not to let wickedness go unchallenged. And so we must follow his lead on that. So we follow his prophetic ministry in this, but we, we worship this king who, uh, who spoke prophetically. Verses 47 to 48 are just a, a uh, summary sentence, essentially, telling us that in these next several days before he was crucified, so our understanding is, this, this day he rode into Jerusalem was on Sunday. This day, based on the other gospel writers, that he went into the temple and cleared the temple uh, in a pretty violent way, pretty ob- obstructive way. Uh, this would have been Monday, and then he died on Friday, right? So we're talking about just a couple more days, but in the meantime, Luke tells us that he was teaching daily in the temple, and just imagine what he would have been teaching here days before he goes to the cross. And people were seeking to destroy him. What's amazing is that they were not able to do that. They couldn't find anything they could do to destroy him because the people were eating up. They were lapping up everything he had to say. But we do know, we, we do know the end of the story. And if you've never read this part of the Bible before, I would love to walk you through it over the next several months. Uh, over the next several months, we'll be preaching these last few chapters of Luke let me just go ahead and tell you the end of the story. They wanted to destroy him, and they succeeded. Kind of. They succeeded for about three days. But they did find a way. And he was destroyed for you. He was destroyed for your sin. He was destroyed for your rebellion. And so I appeal to you again to turn toward him, not away from him, to embrace this beautiful Savior who is the perfect king and embrace the fact that he, while needing us to, to adjust our expectations a little bit based on those first couple pass- uh, verses of this passage, can then have our expectations perfectly fulfilled. He is the true king who is the prince of peace, the Lord of righteousness, who rules over all and will reign forever. And so we worship him, our glorious king. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that your word is sufficient, and we pray that 
Until your return, this pulpit will declare that your word has rightly spoken on every issue. And may we rejoice in the revelation of our King, Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost. And we are among those lost who needed to be sought, who needed a shepherd to rescue us and to bring us back to your fold after we had willfully wandered away. We thank you for this King for His mighty works, for His prophetic ministry, for all that He did in His glory. And we pray that we would uh, have hearts that are inclined toward Him all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.